Thank you. Good to be worshiping with you. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to serve together here at Calvary Church. And we're in a series, what we call Supernatural, the Unseen World. We're looking into that. We began by laying some groundwork, some foundational truths last Sunday. And this Sunday, we're going to explore the area of Satan. And so if you're new, this is your first time, it's not like every Sunday we sort of talk about Satan, although we reference him on occasion. But it's good for us to be aware of what he is up to and where he wants us to go as believers in Jesus. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about demons. And so we'll explore that a little bit further. If you'd like to learn more about demon, demon possession and sort of the tactics that they have, there are a myriad of demons that are in the world today. And then we'll talk about angels and we'll talk about spiritual warfare in the present and in the future as well. So we want to lay tracks down so we have a good understanding of where God would have us to see the unseen world. I'm going to read from Ezekiel chapter 28 where we're going to base our operations for study this morning. And you have an outline that is available for you. You're going to find that outline to be very helpful both on the front side and the back side, if I must say so myself, uh, and I must. Um, but uh, you'll find a lot of extra information that uh, we simply don't have time. There are volumes of books written on this. We wanted to glean from some of the things that would be the most relevant for us, but I think you'll find that to be helpful as you spend your own time before the Lord. Ezekiel is a great prophet of the Old Testament. He wrote during this period of time when there was really no nation of Israel as we know it uh, in the history of the past as well as today. And uh, he spoke and prophesied for God's sake. And occasionally what you will see in the prophecies of the Old Testament, you will find that they are speaking to the historical times in which they live. And then what will happen is in the prophecy, they'll begin to speak beyond the historical times. They'll be going into another realm. For example, one of the easiest examples of that that maybe are familiar to a lot of us is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah spoke against the people of his times. But then in Isaiah 53, he breaks into this great, great uh, passage that really speaks to Christ. It was his future prophetic word of what Christ would live. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we find sort of the similarities of Isaiah 53, only instead of speaking about Christ, he is now speaking about the devil, Satan himself. Let me read the passage, so we're going to break it down as we go through it together. Actually, in verse 11 is when he begins then to address Satan and his history, his past, his present, and his future. It says again in verse 11, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, so this is God's word, this is not something he concocted. God came to him and said, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. And it's rare that he would use the word king. Usually he used the word ruler, so he is addressing someone else in power. And say, Thus says the Lord God, You, referring to Satan now, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God. 
And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profane, profane your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you and has consumed you. And I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. That's past, present, and future of the person of Satan himself. Let me break it down in this way and try to be as practical as I can as well. A lot to cover. But I love what C.S. Lewis says about the whole existence of Satan, demons, and this satanic world. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They're around every corner and everything is the fault of them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and a hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We don't want to err on either way. I don't want you to walk out there and if somebody has keyed your car, well, Satan must have been behind that because he wanted to ruin my day. It may be that just a lot of really sinful, awful people that are out there, not members of Calvary Church, but the outside the Calvary Church. And here are some of the images that you often will see of Satan. He loves his caricatures. He loves to have cartoon natures and kind of funny characters of some Saturday Night Live skit uh, or some really awful and ugly image of Satan as well. In three Sundays from today, let's see, demons, angels, spiritual warfare, on the fourth Sunday, on the fourth Sunday of today, from today, I will show you a picture of Satan himself. I will show you what he looks like. Honestly, I will. And it's true. You'll see. Just wait. So you have to come back, count four Sundays. Put it on your calendar. Open your iPhone. Put it right there. Here's Satan's beginning. Ezekiel chapter 28. To repeat, you had the seal of perfection, God said about uh, Satan. So he was born perfectly, created perfect, perfectly, I should say. He was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, garden of Eden. Obviously he was there, Genesis 3. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. So he was beautifully colored, very creatively designed by God. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On that day that you were created, they were prepared and you were anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God which means he was literally right there where God is. And you walked in the midst of the stones of fire and you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. If I were to summarize at least four observations that come from that, it is this. When Satan was created, he was beautiful and he was wise. He had all knowledge. That's why when we think that we can outsmart Satan, Satan has lived a lot longer than most of us in this, well, all of us in this room. He has lived for generations and generations and generations. Therefore, he has observed human behavior. Therefore, he understands what makes us tick and what makes us 
tick off. So he has the advantage on us in wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the human behavior of people. He knows how to tweak us, how to disturb us, and I'll show you the specific ways that he tries to do that. So we shouldn't be overly fearful, but we should understand the power of and the knowledge that he has because he has lived since the beginning of time. You and I, we've lived 90 years at the most for most of us here, and so we don't have the same insights. He lived in the Garden of Eden where God had created him. We saw that where the serpent came to Eve. He was created sinless. He was a perfect being as he an angel. And what we've referred to as Lucifer. Often in Isaiah chapter 14 that I'm not going to reference this morning, but often there is a description there of the things that Satan has said he said. There is less um, support for believing that that was Satan, but there are those that would believe that. You can reference that yourself. But he was the guardian cherub angel. The cherubs were those angels that protect the holiness of God. For whatever reason, God obviously is all-powerful. But he created a, a tribe of angels. As we get to angels, you'll learn more about this. But there is a class of angels called cherubs. They are those that would stand before God and, and they would protect the holiness of God. So Lucifer, as he would have been called, Satan as we call him today, had the highest position that he could possibly have in all of God's creation before he created Adam and Eve. He had it all. There was no one more powerful than Satan except for the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He had it all. And here's the classic sin that we will see that Satan had. The sin of pride. The sin of pride is saying, I have all this, but I still want more. And we'll see that when it comes to the materialistic attacks that Satan brings to us. So that's the danger. Satan knows what it's like to have it all but not feel like I have enough. And that's the risk that we run in the world today. So Satan's fall. He then collapses. It says in verse 16, this one great little uh, verse, By the abundance of your trade you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. So God said, I see within you unrighteousness. And so you no longer are allowed to be at the mountain of God there in the presence of the holy cherub covering of my, what we call the Shekinah glory of God. So he's cast down. I'll show you at the end the sequence of his being cast away from God. But I pick on this one Hebrew word for trade that I underlined on the screen. This is insightful for Satan's activity today. The word trade is a Hebrew word that literally means to go about from one to another. What Satan loves to do, and here's the thing, Satan is not omnipresent as God is. Omnipresent being everywhere all the time. God is everywhere all the time. Satan is in one location at a time. So he has to go about from this place to that place. If Satan, for example, seemingly, he seems to be over in Nigeria and Kenya these days. Boko Haram, who has now pledged, according to the newspapers this morning, to wipe out all Christians in Nigeria. Well, that sounds satanic to me. So if Satan is in Nigeria, he's not here at Calvary Church at 1010 North Tustin. 
But he could have his demons here saying, you know, I can't be there, but Dave's talking about me. So demon XYZ, would you go there and just sort of position yourself just in case it gets a little out of hand and somebody actually believes what he says and acts on it. So we know that Satan cannot be everywhere, so he has to go about from one to another. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, these words, be of a sober spirit, be on the alert. We should be alert, and I'll show you what to be alert to in a moment. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he prowls around. He looks for the weak link. He looks for the straggler of the flock of God. He wants to destroy. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. We also read about his sin in 1 Timothy 3, 6. Not a new convert. Talking about leadership in the church. We don't want leaders who are brand new converts because they may become conceited and think, look at how good I am. What a prized possession position that I have. And they therefore fall into the condemnation of the devil. Satan's primary sin is pride. All other sins come out of the sin of pride. And uh, you can root yourself back in the genealogy of sin, and it all comes from pride. So we are cautiously positioning ourselves to stand before God, recognizing that at any given moment, pride can seep into our souls and begin to undermine all that God wants to do. Pride is a very pervasive thing, and I'll show you in a couple of weeks the specific ways that that pride reveals itself in our lives. But here is the four areas. I put on the outline, and so I don't want to get lost in some of the weeds. There's a lot of information here. But I want to show you four ways that Satan's strategy is to destroy you and me. Because he has a strategy to destroy his children. And let me just illustrate it with this. I appreciate uh, hearing from you all. And I really mean that because there was a day when I... Didn't want to hear from anybody here, uh, just, which is a whole other story. But I received an email just two weeks ago from one of you, and you gave me permission, thank you, and even to use the name. And uh, I'm going to speak about a young, young boy in our church. His name is Jacob. Jacob is a sixth grader at uh, McPherson Magnet School. And his mom wrote me, Jane wrote me, and said, I just want you to know about my son and, and his stand. He goes to this McPherson Magnet School, and they had to go to a Buddhist temple recently. And when they went to that Buddhist temple, they, all the sixth graders were told that they would need to bow before the Buddha in submission. And Jacob says, well, I'm a Christian, and I don't want to do that. I, I can't do that. Well, it's just symbolic. It's really not the, the real thing. Well, Jacob says, I can't do that, so he took himself out. He stood firm for the cause of Christ. I'm waiting for McPherson Magnet School to come and bow before that cross there, but I'm, I can hold my breath. And then the fall, and so I responded to that and uh, had some observations to make, and then Jacob's mom wrote me again uh, this couple of days ago, and she gave me permission. I want to read just a paragraph of what she wrote to me. And it's just a real, it's just a reality that in the public school system and in the community that surround us, there is a battle. And Satan wants to pick apart and destroy those who stand for him. After the Buddha thing, then she writes this. Monday, 
Common Core testing began, and since we opted Jacob out of testing, he works in the library. Three atheists, self-proclaimed atheist students, whom I had in my class last year, came to the library and cornered Jacob and began bullying him about being a Christian and how Satan wanted him. This day and many days they taunted him about his Tourette's and mimicked him as his tics worsened under pressure. They went on and on messing with his head for about 30 minutes. He was cornered. He kept professing his faith about Jesus and saying that they were wrong. Three eighth graders came in and said they were witches and their God was Satan too. They repeatedly told Jacob everyone hated him and laughed at him. Why didn't he just go and die? Needless to say, he was very upset. I went to the librarian and asked her to file a complaint with the principal. Since then, he has had repercussions from some of the students and their friends or siblings, and he doesn't want me to do anything because it will get worse. He isn't sorry, he told the teacher. I'm not sorry I went to the library. He says he feels God's presence with him. My sweet boy. That's now. These are are tactics, strategic ways to undermine and discourage the faith of believers. And lest we think that this is just not going to happen, this was an example to me that we need to do all that we can to invest in the generations that follow us. Because a lot of us, we sort of get that to a certain extent, but for the young in faith like Jacob, pray for Jacob. Pray for Jacob. That God's strength would be powerful in his life to overcome the strategic attacks of Satan and using the fresh and naive minds of his children and the ways that they try to go about and undermine the faith of those who follow Jesus. And so it, it reminded me that there are strategies and that we need to pray for one another as we attempt to live the life that God's called us to live. And maybe you see that where you work. Maybe you see sort of a mockery being made of those who have faith in your business, in your school, in your neighborhood. Stand strong in that and recognize the strategies that Satan will, will ploy, deploy against us. And they are these. The first strategy that I notice with Satan is for truth. He wants to undermine the fact that there is truth, there is absolute truth. He wants to undermine specifically the truth that is contained in the Bible. He wants to undermine that. And there are three things that I notice, and there's lots of things, but I want to summarize it in three ways. He wants to cause doubt, distortion, and deception. For example, doubt. He wants to create doubt that God's Word is true. He wants to create doubt that there is such a thing as absolute truth. He loves the mindset of today where I can have my truth and you can have your truth. And even if our truths don't merge together as being truth, and even though your truth may be the opposite of my truth, we're okay with that. We're okay with that kind of crazy contradiction. It says in Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent, being Satan, was more crafty. Remember that word crafty. Satan being more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said you should not eat from the tree of the garden. The very first words out of the mouth of Satan are, Indeed has God said. 
He loves to ask questions. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Is that really God's truth? And so he begins to undermine, he creates doubt about the truth of God's Word. There's a church over here on Newport Avenue that occasionally loves to display on their sign, I saw it just last week, that we take the Bible seriously, but we do not take it literally. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you don't take the Bible literally, you do not take the Bible seriously, because those who don't take the Bible literally are then saying about the Bible that there are allegories, there are myths, there was no Garden of Eden, there was no flood over the entire world, uh, there were no miracles of Jesus Christ. And so you begin to undermine, and, and marriage is not this, it is that. You begin to undermine all of the Bible because you don't take it literally as speaking to us. Now, obviously, there are figures of speech, uh, but when God speaks truth, that truth we take seriously if we take it literally. So, uh, again, it's, it's a complete contradiction in one sentence, and we'll look at that and say, oh, that's insightful. Yeah, wow, they got something there. And they put it on their sign. And that doesn't mean you should go and throw eggs at their sign. It means you should go love them like crazy. That'll drive them nuts. <laughs> Second Corinthians 11.3 distorts God's Word. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, remember that word for crafty and now the serpent was more crafty? Well, Paul uses that Greek word for craftiness. Now, but I'm afraid, as referring to Genesis 3.1, as the servant deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. All that Satan wants to do is to sort of move us off center on Christ. Satan's not going to destroy my faith. There is no way I'm going to stop believing that Christ died for my sins, buried and was resurrected, and that the Bible is the literal inerrant, infallible truth of God's Word. There's no way I'm going to stop believing that unless I have a stroke or something. And I start babbling like a baby. But otherwise, I will not stop. But what Satan would love to do is just sort of nudge me off that and begin to teach on things that are sort of a little questionable, marginal, that are more culturally relevant, that are more hip to the times in which we live. He would love for that. Just nudge us off center course. So the simplicity and purity of devotion of Christ, that is what happened. The church over the history of the, of the church since the beginning of time, the church begins to add all these truths, all these doctrines, all these religious uh, behavioral things, liturgical things, and it becomes complex and complicated and and get all these motions you're supposed to make and crazy. And we get our, like, raising hands in church or not raising the thing that uh, we just heard from the comedian on the screen. We, we get lost in all these things, and we lose the simplicity and purity of just simple devotion to Jesus. And how does he do that? With craftiness. Craftiness. Let me take you behind the scenes of the Greek language. This is an amazing word, craftiness. The word craftiness is, is the word panergia. Panergia is made up of two words, pan meaning all, like pantheism. And ergon is the Greek word for work. So craftiness is all works. What does that mean? It means this, that what Satan loves to do is to not necessarily wipe out the belief in the deity of Christ and his substitutionary atonement on the cross to speak seminary language that he died for my sins and he rose again from the third day. He, he can't take that truth away. So then he brings panergia. He means craftiness. He says, well, I can't 
take that truth away, but I can make all works of other ways to God. I can create all works or whatever works for you to get to God. So Satan has created all these other religions that are also claiming ways to God. And so I will dilute the real truth by adding to it substitutionary or counterfeit truths. So I dilute the real truth of what God says. I just want to take what God says and make it less meaningful, less important, less visible by covering up by a forest of bad theology. And so we've got Islam, we've got Buddhism, and we've got all the cults, Christian scientists, Jehovah Witnesses. We've got all these cults that have created lots of a forest of other ways to God and other work efforts to get to God. And so then the, the person of Christ becomes this smaller by virtue of all the size of all the other religions that are out there. And then when crazy people like me say, no, Jesus is the only way to God, we look like we're crazy because, well, look at all these other ways to God. Who says you have the only way to God? Well, I don't say it, but Jesus does. But you diminish who He is by creating all these other counterfeits. So what He's doing with marriage. God says, there is one marriage that I created in the garden. He created man and woman. Man and woman is to be married. So, well, I can't destroy that marriage, although I do through divorce and other, but I want to continue to destroy by raising up other counterfeit models of that. So this is panergia, creating other ways that the same thing can be seemingly accomplished. We need to be alert to the craftiness of Satan, not lose the identity of the truth, but see how he is distorting it with counterfeit truths that are undermining what God had originally designed. And then he wants to deceive us. For such men are false apostles. These that I have, these other cults and other religions. Even in the Christian church like our church, there are those who are deceitful workers, disguising them as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan wants to look as good as he can. That's why these false images that we see of him, that's not him. He wants to blend in. He wants to come alongside. He wants to be our best friend. He wants to be BFF to every believer here. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. So he raises up people who preach in churches like our churches, and they preach things that are good, warm, and fuzzy, and sound like it's comforting to me, but it is a dilution of, or it's a distortion of, the biblical truth that God has given to us. We need to be alert to the ways in which Satan is now creating these counterfeit, deceptive teachers, so-called of God's Word, when they're not really teaching God's Word, they're just simply giving... Nice things that are nice to hear, but I am totally ignorant of what God says in His Word. That is very dangerous. Acts 5 was an example that right there in the midst of the beginning of the church of God, Ananias, Peter said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? As everybody was bringing their land and their goods to the apostles and laying them at their feet. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down 
He breathed his last, and great fear came over him. And what Peter is saying here is that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Here's the, <clears throat> here's the big danger for you and me. We'll look at false theology. I'll look at false theology. I'll look at Jehovah Witnesses or Islam or Buddhism, all these faulty ways to God to have eternal life, forgiveness of sins by works and other religious forms. I'll look at all that and I'll say, I don't believe that. I guess I'm good. But you know what? I can become like Ananias. So can you. In that, we come and we present ourselves as having it all together spiritually. But Satan fills my heart with a lie that like Ananias, I pose as one dedicated, but deep in my own heart, it's corrupt. And maybe in the hiddenness of my life, where in the hiddenness of Ananias' life, he thought he could bring a portion of land and present it as all the land. He thought he could look like the magnanimous big-time giver when he kept back a portion of land for his own selfish deeds. So in the public, he looked like he was a wonderful follower of Jesus. But God saw his heart and that he was only given a part of his life for the purpose of looking good to the public, but he kept part of his life in his own private sinful corruption of selfishness, greed, and pride. And that's the thing that I think that worries me the most, that we can have a room like our room of us, and I can pretend, I can get up here and preach like this any Sunday, but if I have corruption in my own heart and I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing in unrighteousness, then I'm just like Ananias. And if I were doing that, I should live in fear that God would take me out. And so, so should all of us. Be careful of Satan filling our hearts with a posing of faith, but not a reality of 100% faith in Christ. Because it's corrupted by pornography and by evil thoughts and bad attitudes and bullying and abuse in a marriage. I've seen all that where they present themselves on Sunday so great, but behind the curtain, behind the bedroom door, in the kitchen of the home, there's this awful anger and corruption and undermining and unloving attitude and yet come on Sunday and sing like everything's okay. Don't be that way. That's how Satan fills our hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then we need to be alert to this, speaking of those things. The second area, first area is truth. Second area is morality. He offers tempting options to destroy the marriage. As I already referenced that briefly. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul writes, Stop depriving one another except for by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. What Satan loves to do is to undermine the marriage union of a husband and a wife and then bring along alternative options that I now am vulnerable to. And that's why we have marriage classes here, because we want strong marriages. The stronger the marriage, the less the temptation. The weaker the marriage, the greater the temptation. What Satan loves to do is to weaken the fiber of that loving relationship so that he then can tempt you because of your lack of self-control, because he's lived for myriads of generations, and he knows what makes us feel that temptation. He knows what causes us to lack the self-control. He's watched it from generation to generation. We are just like our ancestors. We have the same vulnerabilities, the same weaknesses. 
And he says, now I know how to destroy you. I've fractured your marriage. Now I'm going to tempt you with an evil option. And you're going to feel justified in it. Because we're not getting along, so I deserve happiness. I deserve this outcome. I deserve this opportunity. And who's to blame me? Because if you were married to that man or that woman, you'd probably do it too. And that's the corruption. So Satan loves to tempt us when we're weak. He loves to go after the weak so he can provide something that's beyond my self-control. That's immorality. A third area is in materialism. He wants to entice us with the world's values. There's a great commercial that I saw last year. I want to play it for you here again. It's sort of insightful for satanic world, and, and no offense to you if you're a Mercedes-Benz owner, but uh, take a look. Nice car. Sure is. Make a deal with me, kid. You can have the car and everything that goes along with it. September, set your soul free. The seductive CLA, starting under $30,000 from Mercedes-Benz. If you own a Mercedes, do you get all that stuff? Does that come? Is that really what happens? I didn't know that. But obviously they play off the, the image of Satan and shows all the things that the world gives you and the, everybody that wants them, fame and fortune, all the five P's of pride that love the possessions of power, the position and uh, so forth. And so we see that, but what is also very subtle uh, at the very end, meant as a good thing, but really a bad thing, is that when he sees the price tag, you know, I can, he says, I got this handled all by myself. See, Satan loves that mindset. I've got it all handled all by myself. And we don't. We don't. But there is the temptation that Satan wants to show all the things that I should be having if I was really in agreement with him. So it's the world's values. It's First John 2 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. 
but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so the three, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Satan wants us to think that there is materialistic value in this world, and the more I get, the happier I will be, and if I can just achieve that certain level, then I will finally have the kind of happiness that I want. And some of the most miserable people in the world are some of the most wealthy people in the world. And so he deceives us into that. And the world, who owns the world? We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we know that Satan wants to tempt us. And let me get more specific. I think that there's a lot of us in our church that have overcome materialism. I'm convinced of that. There's great evidence of that. I'm also concerned that there may be some people in our church who have not quite captured what it really means to be fully surrendered in the materialistic financial world. And why do I say that? I don't know who gives what. So I don't know who donates anything at our church. I don't see names. I don't see uh, money that people give. But Michael worked up the statistics and statistically in our church. And this gets real specific. So pull your toes back because I'm going to step on some of them. In our church, 55% of our people give $20 a week or less. Now, $20 $20 a week is approximately $1,000 a year. If the standard or the... Does that reflect the average income of Orange County? For some of you, that's sacrificial giving. You may be living on Social Security and you may have other bills of Medicare and costs that we don't know about. And for you, $20 a week is like the widow's might and just can't do any more. But if you're giving $20 a week and you're making $60,000, $80,000 a year, I worry and I'm concerned that you have not overcome materialism. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Things I see, lust of the eyes. Things I feel, lust of the flesh pride of life, things I want to gain and how I want people to view me because I have a lot of what this world has to offer to me. I fear that that may be overcoming you to the point that it now is sacrificed in your ability to be able to give the way God says give. And I don't want Satan to have rule or reign in that area. So I just lay it at your feet. Let each of you decide. Wherever you're at, and many of you are giving above and beyond and abundantly and sacrificially, and say, praise God, You know who you are. Others, you may be just tipping God. You may be just casually tipping God on Sunday. And we would invite you into a world of wonderment where you see giving as something that is a major portion of who you are. If those people who gave $20 a week would double it, our deficit of $200,000 this year would go away. If 55% who give $20 would give $40 a week, our deficit goes away. And ministry moves on in areas we'd like to move on, like Generation Project and others. So I just bring that to your attention. I'm got to move quickly now. Be alert for the third area. We've talked, fourth area. We've talked in the area of truth, in the area of morality, in the area of materialism, and now the attack against believers. Let me very, very quickly. Notice the three areas that Satan will attack us in. You need to observe and be aware of these things. Be alert to these things. Take emotionally, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 8. 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And what Satan loves to do is emotionally discourage us. Create anxiety in us. The word anxiety in the Greek means to draw me into different directions. I'm scattered. I can't quite figure it out. I feel very, very hectic in my life. And Satan loves to prowl around to create anxiety, emotional fear in his God's children. Be alert to that and find those who can help and pray for you. Physically, he loves to attack because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me from exalting myself that was given me a thorn in the flesh. Paul says, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored Jesus three times that he might leave, and Jesus never healed him. So Satan created a physical malady in Paul's life. And it was used by God to keep him humble, because he was a very proud man before he was saved. And so God will allow Satan to cause physical harm. He did it in Job's case, with boils all over his body. And Satan will also then attack us spiritually. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil. And Satan will look at this in the future, in a few weeks, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and the angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. We'll talk about that throwing thrown down in a few weeks. But Satan is in heaven constantly accusing you and me. Satan is in heaven constantly accusing me. I hear Satan constantly say, not literally, but I have the impression of him saying to the Father in heaven, Dave doesn't have what it takes to be a pastor. I've heard that all my pastoral career. Dave doesn't have what it takes to be a preacher. I've heard him say it. I've heard other people say it. Satan has these voices that he brings of an accusation to the Father in heaven that are to cause us to be undermined and shamed and guilted. Dave has never been fully forgiven of that sin in the past, Father. I bet he always remembers that one sin that he committed that he never feels fully forgiven from and that you're always on his case in a sort of a very judgmental way. Satan loves to take the guilt of sins past that have been forgiven and make them not feel forgiven and feel as though I'm always paying the price by God who's still a little ticked off at me because I did that and I should never have done it. It's that kind of accusation that Satan loves to... He wants to position us in this shameful, guilt-laden way that we are unworthy, that we're unseemly, that we really don't rise to the level that God wants us to be. And God is constantly unhappy with me and so disappointed in me and so disgusted with the way I live my life and my thoughts. And he just simply doesn't love me on an unconditional... God... Satan wants us to think that that is the God that we worship and love. And those are lies. From the pit of hell, lies. But he accuses the brethren. He accuses the brethren day and night. That is his job. As Peter learned, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Demanded permission from God. How often does that happen to us? We don't know. But I've prayed for you. Jesus prayed for Peter. That your faith may not fail, and once when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed for Peter to not fail when Satan sifts him. Peter failed. Jesus prays, don't fail. He fails. 
but then would you return? And Peter returned. But Peter says, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And that's this famous where Peter says the rooster will not crow until Jesus said the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And so he failed. Satan wants to come and destroy our faith, undermine our faith, create doubts in our faith, make us wonder, are we really in the right place? Am I really in the right church? Is the Word of God really true? He wants to create doubt, distortion, and deception in my heart about really, am I with the right spouse? Am I really the parent I should be? Should I really stand up for faith in Christ? Should I fit in with the culture around me? And with the unbelievers, and I'm just really out of time, but there are two things. He wants to blind unbelievers. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And there's a second strategy that he has for non-believers. To take away biblical truth. Now the parable of this is the seed of the sword. Seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so they will not believe and be saved. That tells me when you have a non-believer in your family or a friend, they're, number one, they're blinded to the truth. Number two, they may hear the truth, but Satan takes the truth away. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we pray God remove the blindness, and it means, God, let me repeat the truth repeatedly. Let them see it in my life. Let them see them from my words. When I understand his strategy to non-believers, then I counter that by prayer, by repetition by modeling the truth and proclaiming the truth and praying that blindness is removed from God. And so as we wrap up, you can overcome Satan. I have more on the backside. But we need to evaluate his strategies, find out are they working in my life today in terms of truth, morality, materialism, and some sort of attack emotionally, physically, or spiritually. Humbly confess any sin and admit, God, I, I am not measuring up in morality. I am doubting your word and your truth. I am confusing your truth with the world's values. I am being corrupted in my thinking about what you have said about certain matters of life. Then I need to confess that. Say, God, forgive me. And he loves to forgive us. And then thirdly, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. James 4, 7 says you resist that devil he will flee from you. He will not persist. He's not patient enough. Immature, ungodly people are impatient. Satan is immature and ungodly. And he is impatient. And then grow in your faith. And allow the fact that this truth is your truth. You are from God, little children, have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in us, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. The world listens to them, and we are from God. And he knows, he who knows God listens to us. Let me wrap up with this. Would you pray for the victory in your life and evaluate if any of those strategies are at work in your life? Truth, morality, materialism, and some sort of attack, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And then you surrender that to say, God, greater are you as in me than he is in the world. And here's what you say. I think that nobody should take on Satan by themselves. But you say, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I claim victory. In the name of Jesus, drive away the demon of materialism, immorality, doubts. In the name of Jesus, drive those demons away. 
proclaim Christ's name. They hate the name of Jesus. That's why the name of Jesus is not even proclaimed in certain places because it is, it is so distasteful to the God of this world. So proclaim in the name of Jesus and then pray and pray and pray that God's power overcomes all the matters that you may struggle with. As you leave this morning, I'll mention it in just a moment, on the left side as you go out there, there's a canvas being created, an artistic work that is being created. On one side you write the prayer request and then you flip it around and over the course of the next week or two we'll see a new artwork that has taken its place. But God is asking, and we're asking you to go before God and pray for somebody and write down that prayer request and you can see instructions about that in the lobby as you leave. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you are here with us. Lord, there's so much here. It's overwhelming at times. But I pray, God, that we are alert and aware. I pray, God, that we are realistic and honest with you. And that, Father, you love us so much. You make us aware of these things so that we can understand your love and your care and your guidance, your power, your grace. Help us, Father, to be the children of yours that truly walk in the truth, who live in morality that is honoring to you, that overcomes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of this life in materialistic ways, that overcomes the attacks physically, emotionally, and spiritually. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we want to claim victory in those areas that we would walk the walk that you've called us to walk. Give us the strength and the power of your Spirit to live within us, For greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. Help us to live that truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.